I'm Daniel Galiluk, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Mark Jelinek. Welcome, Mark. Uh, now, you are an Earth scientist, um, but you, you're an Earth scientist who wears many different hats. Uh, you're a volcanologist, among other things. So how, how would you define your science, or how would you explain your science? Well, science, as you say, I wear many hats. I'm mostly a, I'm a physicist at heart, um, and I take a uh, certain way of asking questions to try and get to the heart of problems in physical volcanology in volcano climate coupling and volcano climate research. So the chat, the problem of understanding how do volcanoes affect climate and how does climate in turn affect the way volcanoes work. Um, <clears throat> along that vein, I'm also interested in how volcanoes and glaciers interact and uh, how that interaction affects um, volcanoes and long-term climate change on Earth. I also work on how planets evolve from their beginnings, um, their very beginnings from dust till currently. So how Earth evolved to become what it is today with plate tectonics and life like Daniel, um, and why planets like Mars and Venus uh, evolved down a, a different path. More recently, I've also become quite active in working on the expression of very rapid climate change in the Arctic landscape in a problem where we were trying to uh, build a, a test for a model for the very early climate history of Mars, an ice-covered Mars. Um, we were doing field work in an astonishing place called Axel Heiberg and arrived after the coldest June in recorded human history, recorded uh, at least white human history, um, into the warmest July on record ever, and the transition from temperatures around minus 10 to plus 19 happened over just a couple of days. So it's 86 degrees north latitude with temperatures that were warmer than Vancouver at that same time in the summer. Um, and as we watched the landscape um, come alive in response to that warming, uh, melt, permafrost collapse, uh, grasses, uh, form where no grasses had been for hundreds of years at least. Uh, I became very interested in the challenge of understanding how do very fragile environments like the Arctic respond to the very intense global warming, uh, very intense variability in warming um, related to climate change, and how that response affects um, not just the way the landscape evolves, um, but ecologies. And so we have a new project that I'm particularly excited about that explores how water that was stored in ice for perhaps thousands of years within the ground is released to the surface, carrying with it uh, nutrients as well as bacteria and pathogens into uh, water sources and um, ecologies that affect communities in the north, uh, including First Nations, but also, but also uh, Arctic shelf ecologies along the Arctic Ocean. I'm always amazed by how um, 
many of you scientists take all these different threads and pull them together, create such a, an interesting tapestry. <laughs> Things like th that I wouldn't assume would be connected, like uh, volcanoes and climate and glaciers, um, make total sense when you explain them like that. The connections are, you asked for the, the threads in my science are the defining features. I also look for these kinds of connections and then exploit them. Um, one of the interesting problems that connects all of my interests in volcanology and tectonics and planetary evolution uh, and the current Arctic work is a challenge of trying to understand why Earth is so sensitive to anthropogenic global warming now. So right now, it's the sun, for example, is much warmer than it was a billion years ago or two billion years ago. Um, but Earth was much more resilient to changes in, in surface temperature one or two billion years ago than it is now. Now we worry about a tenth of a degree warming per decade in the northern hemisphere, causing profound shifts in the way our uh, climate system works. Uh, a billion years ago, those kinds, of those kinds of changes happened all the time and much larger. Uh, with, with with nothing at all. Um, and so one of the more profound questions that I've become absorbed in is, why is Earth so nervous now? Uh, and uh, we've been looking at how that nervousness has emerged as a result of tectonics and its, and its connection to volcanoes and climate. Now, Mark, I'm curious, uh, what's your professional background? Uh, what kinds of degrees did you have and where did you go to school? My background is certainly varied. Um, I went to school originally to study uh, history and well, it was really philosophy in um, Hamilton College, a liberal arts college in New York. And then around the middle of my first year, I met a crazy old man who invited me out to the desert on a field trip. And so I ended up doing two degrees when I was at Hamilton, one in geology, because he was such an inspiring character. Um, and then another in um, history, or actually the philosophy of history. Uh, um, and then I went from there to uh, what I would say is a master's degree in ski racing. Um, so I've left my undergrad with a lot of opportunities for grad school that I wasn't ready to explore. And so I took every kind of job to pay for a brief stint as a full-time ski racer. Uh, and, uh, in Colorado. And while I was there, I stayed in touch with a, a guy called Dennis Geist. I did a mass, I did an honors thesis with in the, working in the Galapagos. And um, when um, my uh, passion for ski racing dried up and I was looking for the next thing to do, I was determined to go back to graduate school. It was one, things that, one of the things that happens when you do something that you don't want to do anymore is it helps you decide. Um, and I uh, Denny Geist uh, said, well, I'm moving to Idaho. Why don't you come and do a master's degree there? And while you're there, you can figure out what you want to do with your life. So, and he said, by the way, it's in the Rocky Mountains. And um, I didn't look at a map. I just said it was in Idaho. And so the next winter, I <clears throat> drove out to start my master's degree in the Rocky Mountains to discover that University of Idaho is in a giant lava plain nowhere near the Rocky Mountains. Um, and... Uh, I did a degree there and um, or a master's degree uh, working in uh, Chalice Volcanic Area. It was a beautiful area in central Idaho. Um, but while I was there, I was pretty determined. Actually, I'd become obsessed when I was a ski racer, or even more so when I was an undergrad. When I was doing geology as a degree, I found out more of my questions were about why and how things work as opposed to what. And I'd been very trained, very well trained in 
into characterizing, describing, and observing, but not so well into building understanding. And so when I arrived at Idaho, um, Danny Geist let me spend most of my time in mechanical engineering, and I met a, a very humble, quiet, soft, softly spoken guy called Don Elger. And we began our first conversation when I walked into his office and I said, how do you know you understand something? And that became the beginning of a relationship that was very intense for 15 years and remains to this day, you know, 30 years on or 25 years on. Um, and while doing this degree, I, I was very clear about where I wanted to go um, when I was finished. Um, but not so clear how I could get there. Um, when I finished my master's degree, there was exactly one person in the world from whom I wanted to learn. And the problem at that time, this was 1992, so this was before everybody had, before the internet was everywhere. Uh, the person I wanted to learn from was on the other side of the world. He was in Australia. Uh, and uh, so I started writing him letters and then emails. Um, and... Uh, eventually landed there um, out of uh, a curious sort of series of, I don't know how to describe the kind of uh, luck and persistence that, that I would I would combine or couple to this problem. So, you know, I'm in Idaho talking to a person in Australia. The person in Australia is used to taking people with very different backgrounds to me, usually taking people with applied mathematics and theoretical physics backgrounds. And I had... Uh, two degrees in geology, some time in an engineering program, and a degree in history. So I didn't, I didn't really fit his normal way. So I had to spend a lot of time convincing him that I was serious and that I wasn't uh, a risk as a student. Um, and then um, we wrote a proposal together from afar. And uh, actually, I wrote it and I got excited about one. And I thought I was going to get to go. And then he contacts me and says, well, you know, the proposal is really good. You have basically no chance of getting funded. So um, if you ever want to do a postdoc, come and contact me. And so um, at that time, I'd finished my master's degree, and I was doing construction and some river guiding on the side. And what I didn't tell him when I was getting to know him is that I only applied to work with him. I only had one, you know, there was only one plan on the horizon. And if it didn't work out with this particular guy called Ross Krippis, then I was going to do something quite different. I was going to be a river guide for a while and decide what my next passion was. But I was uh, quite committed to it. So at the end of a long silence on the phone, I said, well, if you ever find yourself in North America anywhere in the next 10 months, uh, contact me and I'll come and find you. Um, and a few months later, some friends had come out for a a bit of a vacation, and I was taking them on a uh, part of the Middle Fork of the Salmon River for a trip. And I called home at one point where we took the boats out just to check on messages. And um, my partner at the time said, yeah, there's this guy with a funny accent who called and said he's in Seattle for 26 more hours. And I was in central Idaho in a canyon, and he was in Seattle. Now, the good news is he wasn't in New York or somewhere else. The bad news is it was even once we were out of the canyon, it was a fully 18-hour trip just to get to Seattle. And I didn't know what he looked like. I'd never met him. Um, but I went down to the two folks that I'd been guiding. They were from New York City. One was my oldest friend. And 
he was uh, very successful in New York and so very goal oriented. And I, I painted this picture to him and I said, well, we can do, we've got a decision to make. Either we continue on your vacation that you worked hard to have and that I promised you, um, or we pack up the boats and we drive th through the night to get me to Seattle before Ross Griffiths leaves the School of Oceanography tomorrow morning. And my oldest friend looked at me and says, well, we got to do that. We have to do that right now. And so we packed up the boats, uh, got out of the canyon, drove across the desert. And about an hour out of Seattle, I realized I really had no idea what he looked like. But he was from Australia. That's all I knew. And so we stopped at a, a local a microbrewery on the way. I said, you know, Australians drink beer. Maybe I can find him somehow. And I bought a two-liter bottle of a local microbrew. And my friends got, you know, we figured out where the School of Oceanography was in Seattle, and they dropped me at the gate. And I walk in, and there's this courtyard full of people, all at tables. And somewhere in this, in this maze of people outside is Ross Griffiths. So I look around, and there's one guy with a beard sitting alone. And there were lots of folks who could easily have been Ross Griffiths, but this one guy just seemed to be the right one. And I walked over and I put the two liter bottle of microbrew on the, onto the table. And he looked up at me like I was, it was entirely expected that I should be there at that moment. And he just looks at me and says, well, you must be Mark. <laughs> and um, we hit it off. We spent the afternoon talking together and I realized that my choice was the right one. He had a way of thinking and viewing the world that I wanted to learn and I wanted to learn and become just uh, become part of. At the end of our conversation, he said, well, we still don't have, I don't know how to fund this yet. Um, we, we can put this proposal in for a, there's an ANU scholarship for postgrad students, but it's very competitive. And, and uh, I looked at him, I feel, I just filled in the blanks. I said, and I don't have the usual background that you, that you get. And he goes, exactly. So anyway, he left back to Australia and I left, not really sure what the next step in my life was going to be. And I took a job for a while looking, for, working for the Oregon Department of Geology, looking for hot water for a geothermal project. And I kept in touch with Ross about once a week. And one day he says, um, um, well, pack your bags. Um, your proposal went in and um, it wasn't ranked last. It was ranked first, um, and it began. You know, so it over the next six or eight months to a year. You know, it, life changed, and uh, my partner and I moved to the other side of the world <clears throat> um, because he and folks at ANU saw something that that crazy old man <clears throat> at Hamilton College saw. Basically, that I didn't play by the rules, and that there was some usefulness in that. And I think the Australians were just called, sort of also curious as to how this weird guy from Idaho would, A, find them, and B, want to come. Um, and that started my PhD uh, there in an, during an astonishing time at the Australian National University, where the institute that I worked in was set up to uh, define and address whatever are the biggest and most important problems. Um, so it's stripped away all of the, their intent was to strip away all of the noise in science and really focus on 
what matters. Um, and so I was really drawn to, um, I, didn't under, I didn't understand how rare that was on the world, but I was really drawn to the focus on doing the right problem at the right time. Um, I was drawn to the rigor. I'd never seen problems broken down and reduced to their absolute simple, simplest components the way I saw when I, I met Ross and worked in that group. But I also never saw the balance in life. That is a defining feature of who I am and who my students are today, um, which is Ross Griffiths at that time led the world in about five different fields. Um, um, but in contrast to most of the folks that I knew in North America, he didn't work all the time. Uh, and uh, my first weekend became a, there became a defining moment. I was, I was a little nervous because I didn't have the skills that most of his students had. And so I was in reading a paper over the weekend, and I see a shadow in front of my office. And I look up, and there's Ross Griffiths. And I'd heard he never comes in on the weekend. But he's just sitting there staring at me. And then he comes over, and he sits down. And my first thought is, I've already blown this somehow. Um, but he looked up at me, and he said something that defined the rest of my PhD and much of my career, which is he said, what I want to hear about on Monday are the adventures you've had on the weekend because it's the downtime where you're creative. We are in a creative business. Um, and that moment really defined my PhD and how I ended up going to Berkeley as a postdoc, also sort of an improbable path, um, and ultimately to where I am now. That's an amazing story or a series of stories. And um, yeah, wow. <laughs> but it, I, what I really enjoy about it is it shows um, we often talk about the power of diversity and we throw that word around so loosely, but um, it's great to see that people need to be diverse within themselves as well and have a diverse skill set. So your history background, I can see it coming through in some of the questions you were asking, like, uh, how do you know when you know something uh, for sure? Um, and when you referred to your work as being very creative um, and the, the diverse cultural perspectives uh, of the approach to work. Um, yeah, I think that's all really impressive. Well, they, because you have a background in history. I mean, they, the, um, as I've, as I learned through my PhD and really since, something I work on with my students a lot is how you know when you understand. The most interesting discussions when I was doing a thesis in history, uh, and I was working on two kinds of problems. One was a you know, a philosophical, almost epistemological problem. Like, how do we actually know stuff in history? And the other was trying to figure out um, why so many people wrote books about Joseph McCarthy. Um, it's a bit like, you know, if you imagine 20 years from now, how many books are going to be about Donald Trump? But in any event, I had these enraging discussions with my history advisor about historical research, uh, historical facts, data, um, what that stuff means and how you put it together. Um, when I ended up as a, in, a PhD, in, in my PhD program, and certainly since, that constant discussion, internal and external, of how we actually know we understand things and to what extent and where that understanding ends and where the next question begins um, is something about which I've become uh, very clear but also devoted to understanding 
it sounds so um, meta and academic, but it's really something that's uh, very much at the forefront of the modern uh, cultural conversation right now with uh, fake news and alternative facts. Um, yeah, this is something that's that everyone's discussing in some form or another. Yeah, no, exactly. It's how do you know a discussion that I edit uh, a, a journal that's that's devoted to deep earth science, but. Um, as the pressure to publish has increased in, over the last 10 or 15 years to publish frequently, um, the tendency to write papers that tell good stories, uh, sometimes akin to fake news. Um, and I'll come back to good stories are important, but the tendency to do that in lieu of building understanding uh, has become a little more popular. Um, now, the good stories, at least in science, you need those. You need stories that annoy you or make you or, or inspire you to think differently. Like, you know, either I can't believe it works like that, or I can't believe that, or that must be wrong. Because those are the, you know, like studying history, science is a very human endeavor. You have to be excited about something before you actually work on it. Um, and so it's important to take risks and write the, the papers that have uh, easy taglines um, or provocative taglines. Um, and the key that I work on with myself, but also particularly with my students, is that you follow up those risky ideas um, with uh, work that actually builds uh, long-lasting understanding of the underpinnings of it. Excellent. Now, it sounds like, I mean, you've got a, a great career so far. Um, I'm curious, what's been your proudest discovery or accomplishment in your career? Proudest discoveries? Proudest accomplishments are easier. Um, for me, my proudest accomplishments are my the PhD students who I mentor. So <clears throat> I don't take many students and the ones that I do take define, so all of my students define a path that's very much their own. And when they're finished, usually we've created a new field, whether it's volcanology or climate science. Uh, or surface processes, um, I've often found myself in a new field partly because of their interest. But watching my PhD students grow from the beginning um, to the people they are when they leave um, is absolutely my, my, that's the part that makes me the most excited. I've had some good, you know, I've had some wonderful discoveries that other people talk about. Um, you know, we, more most recently, you know, we discovered that uh, you know another another negative story about climate change. You know, it turns out that um, you know anthropogenic climate change, anthropogenic greenhouse warming, is warming up, particularly the northern hemisphere. And one of the control systems Earth has is is volcanic aerosols, so volcanic gases that carry uh, like sulfur dioxide that end up in the stratosphere can. Uh, in the presence of water, produce air, become aerosol particles that reflect sunlight. And the big thing there is it cools off the earth a bit. So for many years, the idea was that, well, some of anthropogenic greenhouse forcing will be offset by the fact that volcanoes keep cooling the planet. Well, it turns out that as we warm up the atmosphere, the tropopause that determines whether any volcanic material gets to the stratosphere gets higher. And so as we warm up the planet, less volcanic aerosol gets produced in the stratosphere, and so we warm up the planet again. 
Um, so it's a, uh, interesting sort of feedback. Um, <clears throat> other ones have been, you know, have been, uh, related to earth evolution. Um, so how earth did not end up like Venus, uh, it's been a, a pretty, a pretty neat project. The discovery, uh, one of the most provocative, most of my students that do, uh, most of my PhD students work on projects that tend to test fields and push them. Uh, my last one, Anna Grau, uh, who I work with, whom I worked in the Arctic initially with, um, did a project that demonstrated that rather than having an early warm history, Mars's early climate was a lot more more akin to Antarctica. Um, and she had to show how that. I mean, she had to show work very hard to to demonstrate why that uh, reality is is the most likely. But the biggest challenge in that was convincing a community that was very attached to a tropical early Mars story um, that may, may be a bit misguided. Um, so that discovery was pretty neat. Um, Anna's watching Anna grow through that was, was particularly inspiring. Um, and I've had lots of, um, you know, I work with wonderful students and colleagues. And so we've had quite a few discoveries along, along the way um, that have been fun. Um, but again, it, for me, it's the human component that that really is the the most inspiring. Seeing my students build the skills and build the confidence to challenge a field. Um, so I mentioned Anna Grau is challenging a entrenched planetary field. My last student, uh, <clears throat> Sean Chartrand, challenged a geomorphology community that has certain views of the way rivers work. And my current student, Johan Gilchrist, is. Um, Turning basically turning a volcanology community that has a particular view of what to, what conditions determine whether explosive eruptions are dangerous or not. Um, he's in the process of turning the conventional picture of how that how that works, whether whether it's dangerous or isn't dangerous. So whether it forms a cloud that stays in the atmosphere, for example, or collapses to pyroclastic flows that can decimate local populations. Um, it turns out the prevailing view, um, you know, uh, was a, a little bit off base, and he's shown that he's basically reconstructed the whole construct for how to how to to decide volcanic risk in in that way. Um, so again, the discovery was amazing, and it's ongoing, and he's in the process of helping a, a an entrenched volcanology community learn to think differently. But watching him grow through that, uh, the same way as watching Anna or watching Sean go through the process of doing the hard work it's required to challenge a community to think differently, and then having a tenacity to ensure that the, that work has longevity um, has been amazing. You mentioned that you don't take very many grad students, uh, and, but you do take a lot of pride in them. Uh, what are you looking for when someone applies to be a grad student with you? It's an interesting question. You know, when you start in this business as a young professor, you, you take whoever, whoever will come. And as you become established, you have choices. And, and in the last 10 years, um, I look for students that are very comfortable thinking outside, coloring outside the lines, to use in a popular analogy. Um, so... They're happy to think laterally and for themselves, but I'm also looking for students that have the 
intensity and tenacity to go after the ideas that to which they are the, the most attached. Um, I look for raw passion. I look for folks interested in telling their own story rather than the story that, that I can give them. Uh, and so the interview process is a pretty interesting one. Um, begins with uh, usually some communication via email. I have some simple listings on my website of, of traits that I look for in folks, uh, which already, you know, initially I used to get lots and lots of, I get lots over email, but I used to get lots of applicants. And then as I made a list of thing of, of traits that I look for, uh, which are all uh, different ways of uh, interrogating for what I just described. So folks that are all in, folks that are interested in telling their own story, and folks that are interested in growing and ideally to places they can't imagine. Um, and my process of interviewing goes is really I, I look for folks that are that have those essential elements. And then how much you know they have to have certain skills. They have to be. They don't have to be. I'm a very technical person. Uh, we're a very quantitative group, but I don't require my students to have backgrounds in applied mathematics or or theoretical physics. They have to have the desire and the commitment to gain the skills that they don't have. Um, and uh, so I look for very independent souls that are, who are determined to be on a path that's entirely of their own design. And over the years, I've become better at recognizing that. And I've also become more direct at recognizing those who are qu not quite there yet. So I've helped a number of folks who, wanted, who thought they wanted to work with me find other advisors. Um, because anybody who puts the time in to contact me seriously, I'll always, I'll always help, even if I don't take them as a student. But defining features of growth mentality, um, a desire to tell an own story, and uh, <clears throat> someone who's unafraid of, of, of telling what I would call an authentic story with whatever they do. <clears throat> uh, I look for balance. So all of my students, is a couple of defining characteristics, and those are some. The other is they have to have full lives. Um, it's probably left over from Ross Griffith's quiet comment that saved me from being an overworked, uh, North, a typical uh, U.S. person anyway. Uh, I wouldn't say all of North America. But, um, but balance. So they have to have passion in something that is other than their work to keep, to keep their work in to keep their work uh, creative and where it could be, as opposed to where it is when they arrive. That's great. That's a, a really holistic approach to um, choosing your students. Now I'm curious, uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, a couple of few different projects, um, a few different in uh, the two that, uh, in fact, after we're finished here, I'm meeting with someone who's who's starting a new project that is related to that um, unusual response of the Arctic permafrost to intense and very abrupt warming that I described at the beginning. So the person I'm talking, talking with um, has some experience in, in the physical modeling that can enter into the problem of how does, para, how does permafrost, how does the ice within it melt out, drain, and cause the landscape to collapse. Um, but that's not the interesting part of the problem. So it is interesting because no one's done it, um, and that no one has looked at 
you know, what is the response of the Arctic uh, landscape to 10 or 15 degree shifts that last a few days to five degree shifts that last a season? And what are the responses to watersheds and the Arctic uh, ocean ecologies? That's all stuff we're interested in. Um, but this is a person who, um, while she was doing her PhD, was tasked in May of 2020 to teach a class on hazards. Um, and being that COVID was, it was, took off at that time, she, she was working in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her name is Jansu Kula. Um, she decided to do a project on contact tracing. She was living with six people, and she did a seminar class with, she took 16 students, and they decided to develop an algorithm to use phone-based data, GPS and image data, um, to um, basically produce an algorithm that allows her, allows you to contact trace her roommates, but also any, you know, uh, how that problem, how you would actually do that problem generally in a populated area. To do that, she hooked up with folks from Google and um, other, she didn't know anything about this, but had to learn machine learning and turn this 16 person seminar into a think tank. Um, and they produced a tool that works very well. So her interest in this permafrost problem are, th are three. One, she has a, um, a deep uh, commitment that I only learned about recently to some First Nations folks that she met years and years ago. She's a very spiritual person um, who have a connection to the land that she wants to understand. Um, <clears throat> the second piece is the simple problem of if you live in Alaska or Siberia or uh, Eastern Canada and you have infrastructure that's sitting on permafrost, um, how can we you know, manage um, the survival of this infrastructure uh, in the face of you know, very intense uh, climate variability? The third is the most interesting and falls right out of our COVID course. So we started to ask a question, well, if you imagine you know, the, a lot of the ice that's melting out now is at least 7,500 years old, the last, uh, the Younger Dryas Ice Age, essentially, um, and possibly even older. So what happens if um, bacterial life and viruses that are stored in ice are released into the local ecology um, through rapid global warming? So uh, if you're thinking about COVID, what happens if you know, bacteria and viruses that have with which our you know our current world has no experience is suddenly put back into the mix. Um, and so she's interested in exploring you know how do we actually do that problem mechanically? Um, so how does water get released? Where does it go? How long does it take to get to coastal watersheds or First Nations watersheds um, and even into Arctic uh, shelf ecologies? And then the second piece is to um, take some of what we learn from physical modeling and data science and actually work with uh, cultural anthropologists, in this case at UBC, to try and understand how to set up uh, or try to understand what is the human consequence, how to set, even set that problem up. So it'll be the first project where um, there's a direct, potentially a direct link between work that we do in, in physical modeling will address a very, 
acute problem that may be affecting First Nations folks in Eastern Canada, but also folks in Alaska and Siberia. Um, the second one that's also as, shares a climate change theme is in, related to the funny feedback I mentioned before about, well, volcanoes induce global cooling, which the effect of which is reduced with global warming, thus global warming is making the world even warmer again. Um, a big hole in our understanding of how that process works, our understanding the main controls that determine the extent to which individual explosive eruptions like Pinatubo or Chai Ten or any of the ones you see in the news lately, um, actually deliver sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how that process works. And so some of the work I'm doing with Johan and with my other, another student, as I'm working very closely with now, Colin Rowell, is aimed at understanding how the, the dynamics of eruptions modulates the delivery of volcanic cooling um, into Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and those are really the two coolest problems I'm working on now. A third is looking at how Earth's tectonic arrangement, which changes from what it is now with continents distributed all over the place, to intermittent um, collectives. So every now and then, continents run into each other and form what's called supercontinents, for lack of imagination, perhaps. But all the continents form a giant island. Um, that effect on the inside of the Earth and on the way plate tectonics works um, can affect uh, long-term climate change. And so a third problem that I'm just finishing the end of is how that process may have taken Earth into and out of um, what people know have heard about a lot, Snowball Earth, about 650 million years ago. Um, and so those are really the three, the three coolest things I'm working on now. So how tectonics determines or modulates long-term climate change on Earth, how volcanism modulates short-term climate change, um, and how coupling between volcanism and or how the atmosphere can affect volcanism, but then also how rapid climate variability that can be amplified through volcanism and other processes is playing out in, in fragile environments, the consequences of which affect people. It's funny, whenever we think of new pandemics coming out of nature, uh, we always think of them coming out of the jungle or, or hot climates. Um, but now that you explained it, it totally makes sense that the next one may come out of the Arctic, for all we know. Um, and I've always found the, the uh, fickleness of volcanoes to either heat the, the globe or cool the globe uh, to be really interesting. So that last, your last comment is actually pretty fascinating. So my current student, Colin Rowell, is particularly interested in in exactly that competition. So volcanoes emit CO2 to the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas that, you know, the, which will sit in every, every molecule we put in, we'll sit, we'll sit there for about 400 years. And it emits sulfur dioxide, which can uh, cause global cooling as long as it gets up into the stratosphere. Below the stratosphere, I didn't say earlier, it gets rained out uh, very quickly. And so what Colin is very interested in is trying to understand how the the relative effects of volcanic cooling and, and volcanic warming um, relate to each other and how that ratio of warming to cooling changes uh, as climate changes. So as the delivery of SO2, for example, to the stratosphere is increases or decreases relative to say present day, 
Um, what's the major effect of, of volcanism? But then going back in time, um, we've been interested in how the cooling, warming control that, that volcanoes can um, inflict, basically, on Earth's surface temperature. Um, how that how that how the, that control system actually affected uh, the timing of when of when Earth, for example, melted out of the last ice age. Um, so, to what extent did global the ratio of cooling and warming affect when that meltout began and the pacing of it? And further back in time, um, the snowball Earth analogy or uh, reference I made a minute ago. Um, one of the biggest challenges with Snowball Earth, uh, as the tectonics can take Earth into and out of it, but one of the biggest challenges is getting Earth to freeze to the equator, and volcanism can play a role in that as a trigger, and then getting Earth to melt back out. Once it's, you know, once it's frozen, you have a mirror basically all the way to the equator, um, and so it becomes challenging to get the Earth to warm back up again because it's most of the sunlight's being reflected out. Um, that same control system of CO2 and SO2 that, that volcanoes exert on the Earth's surface Earth system um, has a fundamental control over, over these kinds of processes. That makes total sense. That's a connection I wouldn't have made. Um, but now that you explain it like that, um, yeah, it, I don't know why I didn't make that before. <laughs> Now, I'm curious, uh, some of the best stories I've heard from some of our scientists is um, their field stories. Uh, I've never actually gone to the field, but I've heard it's a crazy place. Uh, do you have a couple of field stories you'd like to share? Oh, a lot. Um, field work is super inspiring, and it's, it is hilarious, insane. So um, I'll start with the Arctic one I, I mentioned. We were ended up in this period of unbelievable warming at 86 degrees north. So actual Heiberg is a funny little island. It's If you go to the northern tip of Greenland and look left, um, it's a couple islands over. And it's not known for nice weather. Um, in fact, a helicopter pilot we met there, we've been working there for five decades, uh, said, well, the longest stint of, of storm-free weather he had seen where we were working was about four days. So... When we were planning our trip, uh, the June, the very cold June I mentioned before, the very warm July, our first worry was June was going to be so cold that none of the snow was going to melt and we weren't going to do anything anyway. And we were going there to, to measure profiles and channels and do some sedimentology. Um, now, when we arrived, having with this helicopter pilot story fully in mind, it was uh, warmer there than it was in Vancouver. Um, 17 or 18 degrees. We were in t-shirts. The first night, none of us used our sleeping bags, which is kind of interesting in the Arctic. Um, but we had a worry, which was that if you only ever get three or four days of good weather, and we have really, really nice weather, 24-hour sun and warmth, um, when is the, sh the other shoe going to fall, basically? So is it going to go from that to the opposite? So we worked like crazy for, for three days solid. Now, I should say that one of the challenges when the Arctic decides to melt like crazy is, well, when stuff melts fast and surface water flows are really high, they're also really dirty. So one of our challenges at arriving there is all of the surface, the river, we had, we had, a, we had planned to use uh, a, you know, a, a small river for a water source. 
Um, it was undrinkable. We had to develop a, um, a, a water filtration system that gave us about a liter an hour for a group of eight people. Um, so it was, uh, um, you know, part of the initial comedy of errors was it's warm. Uh, we may only have three days of nice weather and we, were, we don't have a lot of water. So we have to figure out, figure that out. And we, we, we ended up being very creative uh, for water sources, but then we were also still worried about this three to four day thing. Well, we hit four days and then five days and then six days and seven days and it stayed warm. Um, seventh or eighth day, we, we took a video of permafrost melting while we could watch it melting and collapsing. Um, that's how fast it was happening. And that video is going to be in science world. I think next, later this summer. Um, then it kept going. It went to eight days, nine days, 10 days, and it just kept getting nice. And so we, we had a plan for our field work and we finished our entire planned field work, um, which was very high resolution LIDAR mapping and uh, all kinds of neat stuff. Um, and then we had time for all the stuff we couldn't imagine having time for. So we just kept working and working and working, assuming that that the weather was going to change and the challenges never did. And so we were really tired at the end of two weeks. Few weeks. Um, and so one of the more entertaining moments was having a uh, our last night in this balmy um, Arctic environment. It was geologically the most arresting place I've ever seen. Was having a movie night, you know, in t-shirts uh, and uh, stories. And, you know, it's the most incredible three-week period. My colleague who'd been working there for 30 years had never seen it. The helicopter pilot decided to stay with us because it was so so nice. You know, he didn't even bother to fly out. <clears throat> but having a movie night at 86 degrees north um, at the end of a stint of weather that the Arctic has never seen um, was uh, was pretty neat. Another story <clears throat> was uh, a couple of years ago, we we uh, had a chance to work at Sambancaya uh, Volcano in Peru, which is basically the Peruvian Altiplano. Um, and to get there, we hired a, uh, a driver, drove a, uh, the equivalent of a Tacoma, but a more badass version. And it's about five or six hours, four-wheel drive. We didn't know how to get there, so we got lost on the way in, and the driver turned out had never been there. And so we had an adventure getting there. And But that wasn't the real adventure. On the way up, um, Sabancaya is one of the most active volcanoes in the world, and I'm driving up with my student, Colin Rowell, and we have a plan for field work. We were going to do thermal imaging of an active eruption. So thermal imaging is looking at um, the heat signature of what comes out of an of a, of an eruption while it's happening. It gives us a way of characterizing how the cold atmosphere is interacting with, uh, you know, an explosive erupting uh, plume. And I had my other student, uh, Johan Gilchrist, Yoshi, was with another team, a French group, who was, uh, while we were getting lost in a desert with our thermal, thermal, thermal camera, they were on their way from a different perspective with a radar instrument to do a sort of a CAT scan of the inside of an eruption. The problem on the way up was the volcano turned itself off about a week before we arrived. So it had been erupting continually for years. And so Colin had a history of this. He, he, his master's degree was doing infrasound at a volcano called Karimsky, um, and which has also been, they chose that because it always erupts. And so they set up a sensor array and he arrived 
at Kerimsky, which is difficult to get to. And it, the volcano turned itself off for the entire time he was there. It let him go home and then turned itself on again. So anyway, on the way up this four, five, six-hour Jeep track, when we saw nothing but, you know, uh, sort of steam coming out the top of the volcano and no evidence of an eruption, no evidence of there ever having been an eruption for that matter. He was getting a little nervous. His whole PhD was relying on this. And so I started making up stories about other projects we could do. I said, look at all the cool clouds above the volcano. Um, we can do something with cloud physics. We'll find something. You know, we'll look at, you know, and he was a little nervous. Anyway, it had been shut off for about two weeks, and that was the longest time it had been, or no, sorry, longer than that, nearly a month by the time we, got, we arrived. Um, and the, the locals were talking about maybe it's going dormant, which didn't give Colin any more confidence. Anyway, we arrive at what was going to be our high point at about 5,300 meters, which, you know, our camp. And we set up, I brought a shelter instead of a real tent because it was, thought it was going to be pretty mellow conditions, easy to sleep cold but um, and we had um, I was told that we couldn't use white gas or propane stoves and so we had a few gallons of kerosene and stoves that were supposed to be able to burn kerosene and so the evening got <clears throat> a little more interesting when our driver first didn't have any clothes we decided we we're going to spend the night because it took six hours he was going to spend the night and so I gave him a bunch of I gave him a down jacket and some other clothes which he never which he now owns. He just never took them off. Um, while we were trying to make dinner with these kerosene-based stoves, which turned out didn't burn kerosene. So we were making this stove sort of work while making, uh, you know, burning kerosene, which is horrible stuff. Sorry, not kerosene, diesel fuel. And so we were, you know, trying to boil water to make dinner, and we were making carbon stalactites faster than we were boiling water while the volcano wasn't erupting at 5,300 meters. So the only good part was, you know, sky was stunning at 5,300 meters, but it wasn't quite good enough to get Colin out of his nervousness that uh, we weren't going to see anything. So then I brought out a 25-year-old bottle of scotch, and that helped. But the next morning is really when the story started. Um, at uh, 6.30 or so in the morning, um, got up to uh, have a cup of tea, and the volcano erupted for us, uh, silently but explosively. And then it went into a cadence that has almost never been observed. Um, every four hours, like clockwork, uh, it would erupt, in a and it erupts in a different way. So it's like it waited for Colin to get there and then to show its full personality. We saw you know, single bursts, sustained eruptions, really intense uh, volcanic eruption wind uh, dynamics, uh, wind interactions, all kinds of neat stuff. Everything you read about, if you were a, a volcanologist with a textbook and you thumb through all the pages, all the different ways a volcano can erupt, it usually involves different volcanoes at different times. Someone kind of was doing the full dance for us in real time in all those regimes. Um, and it was, uh, I would say, it changed the flavor of our trip quite a bit. Um, we went from being, what if it doesn't erupt? Am I going to do a PhD on these wispy clouds that sit above Sambankaya just because I have nothing else to do? To, oh my God, where do I start? Um, 
And it was just astonishing. And um, Yoshi was with the French group, different, a different group. Uh, they had a different driver who understood stuff better. And so while we were making carbon stalactites and turning black through the process a little more each day, we went to their campsite where their radar instrument was set up and they had a barbecue and sausages and pancakes. And, uh, and so there was a bit of a rivalry in terms of food, but the work was so astonishing seeing this volcano really having the, you know, for me, it's almost like the volcano let us see her in her full colors. We saw the full dance and it's something, it's something I've, never thought I would see in my life. And it was just astonishing. That sounds amazing. Bo both stories sound amazing. And it seems like uh, you have the ability to, um, to get the most unlikely of outcomes. <laughs> uh, see, yeah, so far I've done pretty well with, with unlikely. Um, and uh, I like unlikely, so it's a good thing. Now I'm curious, uh, what would you say is the best part of your job? The best part of my job? I have the best job in the world. I mean, my job is to work on what I love. And one of the things I love to do is, is grow. And I do it by building on asking questions that are often impossibly difficult. I think, uh, I hope they usually, they usually start that way. And then you learn through the process and you change in that. And the students I take, you know, they'll all love that process as well. And so, um, you know, so my job is to work on what I love, mentor people in that world and hopefully inspire some of the same passion. Uh, and then, you know, then I teach what I do, you know, so there are challenges with teaching, but you know, there are, uh, um, there are challenges with <clears throat> teaching and everything else. Or, um, but I love it. You know, getting students, the biggest thing is, you know, when I work with my own graduate students, the challenge is um, helping them out of their way into what sort of they get outside their comfort zone to a place they can't imagine. I do the same with undergraduates at any level, um, whether it's second year students or fourth year students. Um, and I like the process of helping students get out of their own way so that they, so they can become just more. Um, and um, so it's a good job. And, you know, when I, I'd had a very, I'd worked every kind of job getting to graduate school, not just ski racing, construction, bartending, landscaping, every kind of job that helps you decide what you don't want to do with your life. Um, and uh, so for me, it's been uh, a pleasure. Um, and whatever downsides along the way, there always are. So, you know, there's always a component of any job that feels like a job. They're vastly outweighed by, um, you know, the, the learning and the lifestyle that the job that I have enables. And actually you touched on my next question. Um, what would be some of the, the most challenging or least enjoyable parts of the job? Um, challenges and least enjoyable are different things. Uh, challenges are varied. So there's challenges that are scientific that are objective and easy to define. Um, I mentor, <clears throat> Um, my students tend to be as diverse as people as they are in their interests. Um, and I mentor quite a few people outside of here as well. Um, 
And so one of the biggest challenges is simply navigating the playing field so that they get a chance to go wherever they want to go. So students that want to go into an academic path, um, you know, if they're ambitious female students, they have a different set of rules than ambitious white guys. And those rules are now, they're both changing quite quickly. Um, and folks of color, you know, I've had a few folks, uh, folks of color have, have different challenges. So those are also a little bit more objective, meaning that you can write down certain things when I work with my female students on, for example, the challenge of communicating uh, explicitly because a male dominated world likes that way, uh, as opposed to implicit communication, which can be more natural. Um, we can write down these, these various challenges as if solving a problem and practice them. And uh, we actually do that. My wife, Catherine's group and mine, um, we join forces and meet once a week and they're very intense gatherings, you know, mix of, uh, men and women and, uh, from all different kinds of backgrounds with all different kinds of interests. Um, and one of the reasons that we do that is so that different kinds of people learn how to listen to one another and communicate. And we find that, that the skills that we develop directly as well as implicitly through that process, um, seem to carry on. We have many students, students that have gone on into academics have done exceptionally well. And the students that have gone on into industry have also done well um, without having to sacrifice who they are. Um, some of the other uh, challenges that can be trickier is I encourage my students to work on problems that are in between fields that often push a field. And so some of the issues, for example, with being a, a woman in science, which is already very difficult, if it's a woman in science trying to change the way a community thinks, it's not doubly difficult, it's exponentially more difficult. Um, and so building, you know, b basically one of the, the issues, the, one of the way, one of my approaches to this is to put the issues on the table and talk about them all the time. So... When you push a community to change, no matter who you are, they push back really hard. And it can get personal, can get, well, they can try and make it personal. Um, and the key is not letting it become personal and figuring out, okay, um, what's the dance I have to do to get you folks that don't want to listen to me to listen to me eventually? And it's learning to take emotion and ego out of it, which can be very tricky um, if the assaults become not so professional. And so <clears throat> we work on that stuff pretty directly. Um, again, I like putting the stuff on the table even, even after my students leave. You know, we sort of check in to make sure that things are going well. Um, so anyway, one of the biggest challenges is helping folks get forward, get on with where they want to get to, um, while staying focused on where they want to get to and not the speed bumps that happen along the way. No matter how difficult and um, I wouldn't, that's, that's not so much personal, but they can be, no matter what the character of the speed bump is along the way. Um, and so through that mentoring process, through that process of, which I think is the biggest objective challenge I have to deal with uh, in my job, um, 
it's being able to see the problem in front and not the noise. The noise can be pretty loud uh, and very personal. And that's, um, anyway, so we work on, those are, those kinds of challenges are very difficult. And each one is different. Each one's, each one's response is different. Um, you know, so, you know, a, you know, a female student from Spain, so Anna, Anna uh, Graugalofre, for example, has a way of communicating that is distinct from, you know, Germans, Latins are, you know, communicate differently to Germans, so, um, or to old white guys in the U.S., the Carter Field. So it's, um, uh, we work on a lot, it's all about what is, where does it you want to get to, what are the challenges along the way, as you get harpooned along the way, if you do, um, to remember that you're not really being harpooned, it's just a, it's just a speed bump. Mm-hmm. The key is to keep smiling, keep laughing, and keep moving. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't learn from it, um, but it also gives my students and me, as well as my other colleagues who are similarly engaged with this, um, the confidence to push back against some of these challenges, which do get personal. Um, um, other challenges, you know. <laughs> Academics complain about administrative stuff and bureaucracy. You know that that's in every job, but for me, that's just what we have to do. Um, uh, the challenge is with that, that with that stuff only happens if you want to make change, and that becomes a process of uh, convincing a community that is not necessarily on side with you to do something different. Uh, and um, you know that. That can be hard. Um, it can be uncomfortable. You know, it's sitting in meetings isn't that much fun, but it's nowhere near the challenge of enabling my students that have big eyes and a big ambition or just a love of what they do to be able to navigate in a way that preserves that love. Now, actually, you touched on my next question a little bit. Um, you mentioned that sometimes uh, scientists aren't always uh, professional when they're responding to some of these challenges. Uh, do you feel that earth sciences in general is a welcoming field or is it a little more insular? And also, have you ever experienced any of that uh, unfair treatment for anything about, about you? So the uh, starting with the is earth science welcoming, so it varies a lot. Um, as I said, I work in a lot of different fields. Volcanology, that field is incredibly open, pretty easy. It's relatively young. Um, it's very diverse uh, in terms of demographically, to the extent it can be, uh, meaning that has a higher percentage of, you know, it's more than half women and has a higher percentage, uh, more than half women at the sort of postdoc level, um, has a higher, way higher percentage of folks of color than any field that I've been in, um, mostly because, you know, volcanoes affect Indonesians, Africans, uh, you know, South America, folks from all over the planet. And they're, they're as a field, we're, we're better at inviting everybody into that conversation. Um, uh, and even um, a number of us have tried to get mentoring schemes, you know, to help folks coming from universities that barely have a, you know, a program that would train them to be in this field up to, up to the same speed that the cutting edges of the world. Other fields are trickier, um, and uh, so subfields within earth science have vastly different cultures. Um, um, so I would say that, on average, earth science is certainly more friendly, for example, to women than physics. I've worked in that a little bit, by quite a bit. Um, 
but there are, are certainly subfields within earth science that aren't that different to that. Um, but anyway, as a, in general, earth science is friendlier than others, but it's not over. I mean, it, uh, it, it needs work. And so a number of, I can speak for a number of my own, my closest colleagues, at least from my generation, a number of us are working very, very hard at, um, making access to everybody easier. Um, uh, long before the EDI uh, uh, focus really started, you know, we've been sort of at this, particularly with women. Um, and uh, women in earth science is, is improving, but that's, uh, um, we're not even close in terms of getting those issues uh, sort of resolved. We're getting better, but we're not close on in terms of all of the various components. Uh, and what I mean by that is opportunities, opportunities for advancement. Uh, if you compare the number of folks entering postdocs versus those entering academic uh, jobs, um, for those who want those academic jobs, not everybody does, um, the statistics are really not great yet. Uh, so anyway, that's that's one one part to your, that's a partial answer to one of your questions. Um, <clears throat> Your second question, I just forgot what it was. If you've uh, ever felt um, unfairly treated. Oh, absolutely. So when I was, I tend to not follow clubs. And so clubs don't like me that much. So, um, and it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't bother me now. When I was starting, when I was looking for a job at the beginning, um, one of the challenges you have when you work in a number of fields or you just think a little left of where everybody thinks you should be thinking um, is they view it as a threat or they don't understand. Uh, worst case, they just fear. Uh, but usually it's not understanding where you're coming from um, is a different way of saying that you make me nervous. Uh, and so initially getting hired and uh, getting to work and once I once I was hired, um, you know, getting opportunities in fields I had not been in before. Um, you know, one benefit that I had is working in Canada. My funding isn't attached to whether I get funded in a certain field. I can just, as long as I have some funding, I can try something out. Um, but <clears throat> the harpoons that I felt have mostly been at the beginning when I was the new person. Um, a little later when I was just a person that thinks differently. Um, and then really once people got used to the fact that I think differently then I got in people and actually like that. <laughs> um, but it takes quite a while. Uh, it took a while to get that, to get to that. Um, and now I'm just the guy who thinks a little differently. Um, um, so, you know, those kinds of challenges I think are pretty normal for, uh, and that's, gender and race independent when you're the new person trying to get onto a radar that doesn't know about you and doesn't trust you yet. Um, there are certain challenges. Uh, and in the mentoring I talked about a minute ago with helping my younger folks navigate, um, the, for the baseline issue is just that piece is not worrying that people aren't inviting you to things yet because they don't know you. Um, uh, the irrationality of stuff that happens along, in addition to that, is the other piece that I was mostly referring to. 
Um, but anyway, just, you know, the, the challenges of starting out were the, you know, um, you know, challenges when you hear it's sort of different ones. Um, so I have a, perhaps a more ambitious view of what, um, of what's possible in science. And one of the more interesting issues that I still struggle with is the fact that, um, not all of my colleagues, not just here, but uh, in general, have the same view that we should just be doing the biggest, coolest, most interesting things. Uh, a lot of folks just like doing what they know how to do. Um, and that doesn't sound that different, um, but in terms of thinking about how you engage with folks, if you have one speed, which is fired up, what I've learned to modulate a little bit, and you're working with someone or meet someone who isn't fired up or wish they were, but they don't have they don't think they have good ideas. Um, um, then you learn to tread carefully. As I was getting into this game, that was that was a challenge, and, and it remains one. In a sense, not because of who you are, uh, more just because the field um, uh, is more nervous, I guess. Now, one challenge we've we've all had to deal with this year, especially, uh, has been COVID nineteen. Uh, so I'm curious, how has the pandemic affected your work, and have you been able to keep working? So in terms of my own work, there's positives and negatives. I mean, the positive is having, you know, removing work, travel, and logistics associated with uh, even going to, even when at UBC, having to get to work and back from work and so on. Um, the extra time in the day provided time for time to, you know, think creatively, which as you get further on in this business, it's harder to find that time. More time to spend with Catherine, my wife. More time basically on very small things, which matter a lot. The challenges um, have been managing a bit mental health with a couple of my newer students. Folks arrive alone to a new place uh, and then the world shuts down, so they remain alone. And so the human component there uh, um, has been uh, probably arguably the biggest challenge. You know, in terms of, and then, you know, the objective stuff like, you know, we didn't, obviously any field work we had planned wasn't going to happen. Um, that's not a big deal to me because I've got projects that involve field work and not. Um, but really it was the human component. So again, the plus side was time for myself a bit to think uh, quietly and creatively. Time to be with my wife. Usually she's away every third week and uh, uh, she's enjoyed that time away, but we've enjoyed the time together. Biggest challenges, I said, one of my graduate students teaching by Zoom, and there was certain... You know, we tried tried some cool stuff and when I taught in the fall. I didn't, I didn't teach this spring, um, which worked way better than I expected in some ways. Um, but the absence of real connection, human three-dimensional human connection with, with students, particularly my second years who were, you know, basically they're still, they still, they're living at home, the same bedroom they've been in their whole life. The absence, you know, so I worked very hard to make a connection in a 2D world. Um, and tried all kinds of things to that end. But the absence of a human can connection, you know, was challenging for me as a, as a professor who's motivated by taking people outside their comfort zone because that process is very individual. And, you know, challenging, I think, just because I like to know the folks that I'm notionally mentoring. And I, I don't believe that this 2D world is the new normal. It's just different. Um, you know, on the plus side, the quietest, shyest students who I normally probably would never have heard of 
um, just wouldn't shut up over Zoom. They're like, you know, open up the chat window and away they go. So there are folks that I got to reach and connect with who I've stayed in connection with since at least since the fall. Uh, I may not have connected with this in the same way. It's certainly my bigger, certainly my bigger class. It's amazing how when you um, overturn the regular classroom paradigm, uh, some really interesting, interesting things can happen. Speaking of which, um, you clearly enjoy mentoring your students, uh, all of them, even your undergrads uh, in those large classes. So uh, what background uh, or courses or experience would you recommend for someone listening and thinking that what you do is something that they would want to do? I'm a quantitative person, um, so <clears throat> yeah, in terms of nuts and bolts, you know, the you know a, a training in basic science, earth science is great training, <clears throat> but a you know a thorough training in, in basic science um, just never hurts. That's very it's and you need if you need the basic tool set even if you don't have. <clears throat> we always hear about you know bad teachers in math and physics and stuff, and that's definitely real. But basically, enough training in basic science that you can take an ability to wonder and ask, you know, just ask your own questions that, um, how do I say it differently? One of the things that we train most in undergraduates is the ability to, particularly our advanced undergraduates, is to see through a, a mess of observations or a, a funky design in a model or something like that and see to the essence and by doing through doing that we sort of teach them to ask a question that gets to the heart of the matter and then we sort of learn to build tools to address that um, training in basic science gives you some of that vocabulary even in even in the background if you're not ready for it so what i find is that students that uh develop the work ethic to get through um you know, technical subjects early on are unafraid of putting the time in later to really go after the things that inspire them. Um, and that's, uh, so that's one piece. And having some, you know, having some of the tools is just good, particularly in this, the current world, which is going increasingly quantitative. Being able to read the newspaper, uh, look at a, a newspaper article related to a, uh, a plot, whether it's climate change or what, the Dow Jones is doing and assess what you see on that plot and assess whether the person writing the article is out to lunch. Um, it's just a good thing to be able to do. So the more experience with that, the better. <clears throat> and outside of that experience in research, and if folks that are interested, if this question is aimed at folks that are interested in coming as graduate students or uh, interested in doing honors degrees, you know, a love of, a love of the question and not the answer is a big thing. Increasingly, there's an emphasis on exams, uh, getting the right answer, and it's produced, you know, produces a sort of goal-oriented mindset, um, a series of metrics that you pass to succeed. What I look for and what I would suggest finding is you know, training, and that this is where my humanities training and Daniel, your history and, and your history and history is probably similar. Um, where you spend more time trying to understand what's the right question I need to ask to learn the most about this thing that I'm finding the most, the most inspiring. So less interest in the goal and more about the process. Um, and that's where, you know, basic 
sciences can be helpful, although the first, a lot of it is not trained this way, but you learn a process to an end. And in what we do, um, you know, whether it's, you know, fundamental science research or uh, even this problem we're going to end up working with that is marrying uh, the physics of the response of permafrost to rapid global warming to the cultural anthropologic implications. Um, you know, learning to uh, take that, um, that kind of problem apart so that you can separate the humanities questions and the science questions and then the joint humanities and science questions. Um, you know, that's key. So, you know, training, any kind of training that's in process and not goal is, is a big deal. Uh, technical skills is good. Um, writing, writing is thinking. You know, so students that have a humanities background that do a lot of writing um, or students that take my undergrad courses and end up doing a lot of writing. Um, but they learned at an early stage that writing is thinking and not, it's not just putting words on a page. Um, so experience, you know, in technical skills, experience with writing, and that can be in English classes in history or philosophy. It doesn't really matter. Um, and then obviously some, you know, a background in earth science, uh, is, you know, is, is great. Uh, degree is great too, but, um, you know, I, I look at students with varied backgrounds because, well, for the reasons I, I started with, uh, in terms of the kinds of students that I look for. Sounds like there's no wrong, no wrong path. <laughs> no, the only wrong path is if you take the easy path. Um, if you just choose a bunch of classes that give you a really high GPA and don't challenge yourself to be a little more than you could be otherwise, and don't find out what it is to, uh, fail and recover from that, um, then you've done yourself a disservice. Well, Mark, that's been really fascinating. Um, that's all the questions I have for today. Is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Uh, no, that's, that's just great. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.